Good morning, Shepherd of the Valley. You guys out there? Boy, it's great to see you. You know, we always get such loving greetings. We even get loving greetings from people we don't know around here. It's great. I think of all the churches we've served as an interim pastor over the last 15 years, this by far is the most loving church. I always feel like um, a little mixed emotions when I'm asked to, to uh, preach here because uh, when Lois and I come, we love to hear Tommy teach. We just do. He, he's a lot deeper thinker than I am. You know, my, my cookies are always pretty much on the bottom shelf. And, uh, you know, Tommy, Tommy thinks in a, different, in a different realm. And on the way home from church, Lois and I always have conversations and discussions about things that Tommy has shared. But I'm so glad that, uh, that he and Sue can have this time away. And by the way, when I talk to Tommy, we connect periodically. And um, he tells me that you're taking good care of him and taking good care of Sue. And I just keep that up, you guys. You got a gem of a couple in Tommy and Sue, don't you? And I know you, I know you know it, and I uh, hope that you express it to them often, uh, and not just during October, you know, all year long, just to say how much you appreciate uh, them and what they do. I have an understatement for you. Life and ministry in the last year, well, two years, has been pretty challenging, right? Uh, this has really been something. Uh, pandemic, riots, wildfires, the presidential election. We, our last assignment was in uh, Nebraska. And uh, things are a lot different in a mid small Midwest town than they are out on the West Coast. And uh, so when we were getting ready to come back, they had their, their new pastor. They were really concerned about us. And they said, are you sure it's going to be safe for you to go back to Oregon? And we said, well, just keep a shelter available for us back here just in case we decide to... To, uh, to return. I think the thing that sets all of this apart is that this crisis affects virtually every part of our life. And think about the scope of things that have been affected since March of last year. Um, it threatens our health, our lifespan, our lifestyle, our personal freedom, threatened our jobs, our money, our relationships. It's threatened our emotional well-being, our mental health and our education, and even future planning. You know, it used to be saying, well, we're going to go here and do this and do that. Now, we have, now wait, wait just a minute. We delayed a trip to New York twice to see our son and his family uh, because of the situation. So it affects our future planning uh, as well. It seems like there's also no place to run and hide. Usually, you know, if something bad has happened in one part of the world, you can just say, well, I'm going to go to a different state. Or I'm going to go a different, even to a different part of the world, but you can't do that now because things there are just about like they are here. I mean, if the virus doesn't kill us, the isolation and depression just might. So how have you been coping? How do you cope with this pandemic that has been going on? Well, we've spent a lot of time in Zoom meetings, binge-watching on Netflix, going to live stream services, and I know we have people watching by live stream today. Quite frankly, one of my major coping skills is humor. Not just my own, but you know, listening to it from other people. So I collected a little bit of pandemic humor for you today. And I'm sorry if this offends your sensibilities, but I will be gone soon. Okay. <laughs> my husband pur purchased a world map and then gave me a dart and said, throw this and wherever it lands, that's where I'm taking you. When the pandemic ends, turned out we're spending two weeks behind the fridge. I need to practice social distancing from the refrigerator. Public service announcement. Every free, uh, few days, try on your jeans just to make sure they fit 
pajamas will have you believing all is well in the kingdom. <laughs> this morning I saw a neighbor talking to her cat. It was obvious she thought the cat understood her. I came into the house, told my dog, we laughed a lot. <laughs> I'll tell you a coronavirus joke now, but you'll have to wait two weeks until you get it. Well, today I'm preaching from the upper room discourse of Jesus. And if this event was taking place in 2021, it might look something like this. It'll take some of you to, it, it may take two weeks for you to get it, I don't know. <laughs> All joking aside, if Jesus himself in person were to step into this assembly today or to step into our worlds, uh, I think he would say what he said back in John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let yourselves be disturbed. You must not your, let yourself be distressed. Don't let this rattle you. Don't worry or surrender to your fear. Don't get lost in despair. There are two things that make these words really encouraging. First is who said them. I mean, when Jesus himself says them, he's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the creator of us. Uh, the Lord of time and eternity. He's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's our Savior and Lord. And so when he says that, uh, just his voice alone is enough to say, let not your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Authority, voice of authority there. Second thing that gives these words power is the context of the whole passage because he gives specific reasons why we shouldn't be troubled. Specific reasons why we shouldn't be troubled. And so that's where we're going to be today. I appreciate Rob reading the passage. Rob, I think your beard has gotten prettier through the years. I don't know. There's just something about it. The longer your beard, the wiser you are, too. I think you, you stroke that thing. John 14, 1 through 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. Now, let's put this in context a little bit. John chapter 13 describes several troubling things that happened in the upper room before the words of encouragement. Sometimes we kind of romanticize the upper room experience in terms of what it was like. Um, Passover meal, foot washing, um, initiating the Lord's Supper. Came to my mind an old, the lyrics from an old, old hymn. I probably haven't sung this hymn twice in my whole life, but I've heard it from time to time. It's called In the Upper Room, In the Upper Room with Jesus. In the Upper Room with Jesus, sitting at his nail-scarred feet. Oh, what rich and full communion, fellowship divine and sweet. There's a place for all the weak and weary, a place where all may find real peace. In the upper room with Jesus, all our cares and heartaches cease. But if you look at the context of what was taking place in that upper room, it was more like a war room than it was a retreat center. Jesus announced, this is the last Passover meal that I'm going to eat with you before I leave you. Those feelings of abandonment, this one that they have literally committed their lives to says, I'm out of here. I'm going to be leaving you very soon. 
What led up to the foot washing was the ongoing argument among the 12 about who would be greatest in the kingdom. It's like power struggles that I've seen in churches, squabbling at leadership and congregational meetings, vying for position. Who's really in charge here? Who's, who's got the greatest place? They were arguing about that openly. The instituting of the Lord's Supper was marked from, by some very troubling announcements. Jesus said that the bread and the wine, which we're going to take after this sermon, symbolized the excruciating, brutal death he was about to die. This is not a sweet little thing that we're taking a little snack and saying, oh, isn't this sweet? We have this taste. This is what it represents. He also announced that one of this tight-knit band of brothers would, in fact, sell him out to the enemies, and we know that was Judas, the treasurer. Finally, he said that Peter the most outspoken and ardent disciple would actually turn his back and deny Jesus when he was most needed. That's the context. That's the context for the Lord's Supper. So rather than laughter and warm fuzzies and sweetness and light, this room was filled with drama and trauma. Everyone is dazed and confused. They're looking around. What is happening here? We're not talking about a sweet little gathering of friends. Lots of drama, lots of trauma. And it was about to get even more intense because remember they left the upper room and they went to Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested. And then they went to Calvary where Jesus was executed. Troubled disciples in first century Jerusalem and 21st century Hood River need these comforting words from Jesus. In the middle of the chaos, don't let your hearts be troubled right. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, if you want more details, the reason why, as he goes on to talk about that, he says that I'm, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you so that we can be together in the future. If you want more details about that, go to Revelation 21 and 22. It talks about that new home that Jesus is preparing for us, grander than anything on the street of dreams or the Piddock Mansion or Buckingham Palace or the White House. When we die or he returns, we're going to move in debt-free, mortgage paid up. Isn't that a great thought? And of course, the very best thing about this new house in heaven is that every saint from all the ages is going to be there together with him. That's a great neighborhood, isn't it? That's a wonderful neighborhood that we're going to be moving into. We'll have all eternity to enjoy his presence and the presence of each other as we explore the new heavens and the new earth. And I could try to wax more eloquent, I suppose, but 1 Corinthians 2.9 says it well. No one's ever seen or heard anything like this, never so much as imagined anything quite like it, what God has arranged for those who love him. For Christ followers, the best days are always ahead of us. The best days are not behind us. The best days are not right now. The best days, the best days are always ahead of us. One commentator put it like this. Jesus came to earth to prepare man for heaven. He left earth to prepare heaven for man. Isn't that good? Before leaving this section, I want to say a little bit about verse 3 where he says, I'm going to come and get you. I'm coming back. I've never been able to easily connect 
today's headlines with biblical prophecies. Now, I admire people who do it. I'm also a little skeptical of those who, who make definitive statements about the signs of the times where Russia and China and the United States fit into it all. I've always contended that the rapture of the church will come without any signs and without any warnings. Everybody's going to be surprised by the rapture. That the major, the major prophetic events I believe that are described there are going to take place during the seven-year tribulation period while we're enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. But it's hard to ignore the things that have unfolded since March of 2020. Prophetic messages and passages in Daniel and Revelation describe a one-world ruler, one-world religion, worldwide lawlessness, wars, and pestilence. Without setting dates or making predictions, we can see how quickly things can change. It seemed like these things would gradually unfold, but we've seen things happen at breakneck speed in the last year and a half. And we understand that some of the major things that are talked about in scriptures about what will happen can happen very quickly. Happen very quickly. And I think that's what this situation has certainly been teaching me. Romans 13, 11. You know what sort of times we live in. And so you should live properly. It's time to wake up. You know that the day will come when uh, we will be saved is nearer now than when we first put our faith in the Lord. Don't let your hearts be troubled. We got a lot to look forward to. The future, the future is bright. Second reason why we can be encouraged in the middle of this mess is that the pathway is clear. Verses 4 through 6. You know the way where I'm going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Every small group and every class needs a Thomas. Not a skeptic or a doubter, but someone who is gut honest, who asks the questions that others didn't even think of or they were afraid to ask. Have you ever had somebody in a group like that? You just kind of get cut right through it. My wife is like that. I always tell everybody, she asks questions in the cracks that I don't have easy answers to. It really frustrates me. Her last question was, when we're raptured, will we leave our clothes behind? <laughs> I had never thought of that before. And wondering if there will be little piles of clothes everywhere you go. I don't know the answer to that, honey. Tom took Jesus literally, and when he talked about a future home and wanted specific, he wanted specific directions. Lord, can you give us Google Maps, GPS, something like that, but we just need to know how to get there. We talked about this great place. It's his honest question that sets the stage for one of Jesus' most succinct, profound statements about himself. Uh, it's one of the best known and oft-quoted of the I am statements. Deep theologians and dynamic Bible preachers have written and spoken volumes on these three words. Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We often relate John 14, 6 to initial salvation, but I believe it's got broader applications than that. Remember, uh, rather than living or giving a, a list of directions to heaven, Jesus says that we are to follow him there. He says, 
I am the way to get there. In other words, he's not the, he didn't say go that way. What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. I am the way. You go to Walmart and you need some super glue. And you go in and you look all around. And some of you will look for it on your own because you really like super glue and you've been there and you've gotten that before. But others of us will wimp out right at the beginning and look for an associate and say, can you tell me where the super glue is? And he says, follow me, I'll take you there. Same thing with Jesus. Follow me, I'll take you there. I like the newly minted term Christ follower for Christian because that really is the essence of what we're talking about here. I want to learn and follow the example of Jesus as revealed in his word and in real life experiences with him. I see his working in the lives of other seasoned Christ followers as well. Lord, what are the next steps? Lead me. I need you to lead me. And Jesus says, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. Colossians 2, 3. It is in him and in him alone that men will find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. One of the most difficult challenges since March of 2020 has been trying to figure out who to believe and what to believe. About the source of the virus, about gathering restrictions, masks and distancing, about the vaccine. Do you believe CNN? Do you believe Fox? Do you believe the CDC? Do you believe WHO? Do you believe conservatives or liberals or moderates or right wing or left wing or center? Do you trust what you read on Facebook and Twitter and the Drudge Report? Who's giving out real news, real information, and who's giving out fake news? And I have to tell you, and you know that sincere believers, intelligent believers, have come to different conclusions about those things in areas that are not clearly spelled out in the Word of God. Unfortunately, differences of perspective on these things have divided Christians, family members, and friends from one another. We call it now the cancel culture. If you don't agree with me about these things, I'm just going to write you off. I'm going to pretend you don't exist because you see these things differently than I see them. Differences of perspectives have divided churches in terms of the way that we're going to follow the mandates. And I have to admit to you that I can't figure it all out. I don't have all the answers, but I take comfort in passages like Psalm 131 that says, O Lord, my heart is not conceited. My eyes do not look down on others. I am not involved in things too big or too difficult for me. Instead, I have kept my soul calm and quiet. My soul is content as a weaned child is content on its mother's, in its mother's arms. Israel, put your hope in the Lord now and forever. So how do we handle these things? Well, we do our research, go to the sources, and we kind of compare the informations there, and then we make the best decisions that we can. We ask the Lord for discernment as we read and ponder the information that is provided. But I think primarily we need to focus on the things that we do know to be true. And those have to do with the things about Jesus, about who he is and what he wants from us, regardless of the situations that we find ourselves in life. And so we can wrangle about things that are extra biblical, but our responses to one another and to the situations, those things are biblical. 
They have to do with us walking with the Lord and following him even in the middle of troubled times. If, in fact, Jesus is the truth, we need to learn more about him. Trust him to guide us in all areas and leave judgment to God. Leave the judgment to God. Finally, Jesus is the giver of all life, physical and spiritual, mortal and eternal, and even emotional life. John 10.10, Jesus said the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came so that they would have life and have it abundantly. I take that to mean that we can live a full, abundant life behind a mask. I take that to mean that we can live a full, abundant life even if we're distanced. I take that to mean that we can live a full, abundant life on Zoom or live stream or dealing with whatever it is that we have to deal with in the middle of all of this. He can provide life despite all of the things that we're working through right now. Even illness and even death. What if we die of COVID? Everybody's going to die of something. Is that news to you? We're all going to die of something, folks. Unless Jesus returns first, which is cool. That would be great. Interrupt this whole thing. That would take care of the problem right there, wouldn't it? Jesus returned. Pretty well fix all the stuff. That would be a wonderful thing. But we're all going to die of something. And where is our hope? Where is our hope? Where is our focus? We can argue about COVID or we can say, Lord, in the years that you give me, in the weeks that you give me, in the days that you give me, I want to follow you as the way and the truth and the life, even going through all of this. Jesus is the only one who can give this kind of life, despite the circumstances, because he's the only one who connects us with God. When we try to find life in any other person or any other experience or possession or religion or philosophy, we will be disappointed. Christ followers, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't you let your heart be troubled because your future is bright and the way is clear and your faith is valid. Let's pick it up. In verse 7, Jesus told them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do, uh, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. No one on earth knew Jesus better than the guy sitting around that table that night they didn't they'd they'd seen him a long time they'd been with him a long time been through so much together teacher and students master and servants traveling companions and guide 
band of brothers, closest of friends. They knew that Jesus was a man of God. They knew he was even the son of God, but there was one more step they needed to take in their faith. And this time it's Phil. First it was Tom, now it's Phil who makes the ultimate request. Jesus, you and the Father are so close. Could you ask him like to appear? Could you ask him like to materialize so we can actually see him? At least get him online. Get him on the Zoom call or FaceTime. Even a pre-recording YouTube video would be just fine, but just something where we can see God and know that he actually is here among us. Phil asked for that final assurance that God himself was there. Jesus' answer frames the foundational doctrine of Christianity. Jesus himself is God. Foundational doctrine, foundational truth of Christianity starts with that. Jesus himself is God. When these men were with him around a table in a boat on a hillside or at a wedding... They were with God himself. They couldn't get closer to God than they were at those moments with Jesus. The profound words they heard and the miraculous works that they had witnessed were compelling evidence of that basic truth. The disciples had flashes of recognition along the way, especially when their lives were in danger or the challenges were overwhelming. I mean, when they're out in that boat and they're getting seasick and they're terrified... And Jesus calms that stormy sea with one word. It's a great word. You know what the word is? Hush. Isn't that great? You ever say that to your kids? How'd that work for you? Jesus said it to a stormy sea. And it went dead calm. Feeding the crowds, healing the sick, raising the dead. And even you anglers... You fishermen, what would it take to convince you that God is present? A full net. If you've been skunked while you're fishing all night long and finally your net is full of fish and you say, there is a God and he's here. The point here is that Jesus himself was God in the flesh. Most of those in that room and in this room and tuning in online have faith in God, but We always seem to want more evidence that he is present in the crisis when our hearts are troubled. I don't know who put this together, but I've referred to it several times in my life, and my faith has always been stimulated by it. And so here it is, talking about Jesus. All names and titles are applied to him. All divine names and titles are applied to him. He's called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords and King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to him. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, and immutable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by him and for him, and by him all things consist. He is the object of worship to all intelligent creatures, even the highest, all of the angels are commanded to prostrate themselves before him. He is the object of all religious sentiments of reverence, love, faith, and devotion. To him, men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He required that man should honor him as they honor the Father. They should exercise the same faith in him that they do in God. 
He declares that he and the Father are one, that those who had seen him had seen the Father also. He calls all men unto him, promises to forgive their sins and send them the Holy Spirit to give them rest and peace, to raise them up on the last day and to give them eternal life. God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be, to promise and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the beginning in all ages and in all places. When your hearts are troubled, remember that your future is bright, that the way is clear, that your faith is valid. And finally, the possibilities are endless. Rob especially likes this portion. He told me. All right, verses 12 through 14. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works that I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Contained in these verses are two mind-blowing promises that quite frankly we have a hard time believing. The first one is that after Jesus' departure, his followers would accomplish greater works than he did when he was on the earth. These disciples did some of the things that Jesus did. They were involved in healings and exorcisms, even raising the dead. Not quite as many or as grand as Jesus, but they did some of those things. I've been a Christ follower from my childhood through adolescence, adulthood, ministry for over 50 years, but I've never once laid my hand on anybody and seen cancer cured. I've never cast out demons. I've never brought a corpse back to life. I've never walked on water, even though I live in Portland. And I've never multiplied food, except when I said supersize it at McDonald's. I haven't been able to read minds perfectly. I haven't been able to predict the future with total accuracy. Now, there are some Christians who have made those claims, but that's beyond my experience. I haven't had that experience. None of those. Maybe this first promise was made specifically to the men in the room that night, referring to the establishment expansion of the Church of Jesus Christ around the world. The second fantastic promise was that they and we would get absolutely everything on our prayer list. All I have to do is ask in his name. My guess is that every one of us have prayed in Jesus' name for things that simply didn't happen. Or at least they didn't happen the way that we had hoped. Praying for the miraculous and complete healing of a loved one with terminal cancer. Praying that our candidate would be elected or re-elected. Praying that the pandemic would end quickly and that no one in our circle of family and friends would get COVID-19. This and other passages seem to place conditions and disclaimers on the promise. You go to other passages that talk about the fact that we need to pray with persistence, that we need to pray in agreement with other believers, agree about those things that they will happen, that when we come, we shouldn't be doubting at all, that we should have complete faith that they're going to happen, and that we're praying according to his will. From a logical standpoint, Can you imagine placing an unlimited promise in the hands of a believer like that, of any person that had come along? In other words, they could could ask for anything and it would be done, even if it was to get revenge 
or they wanted personal glory or wealth or vindication to use that power in an unlimited way. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet a lot of you have seen the movie Bruce Almighty. That is kind of a funny movie because it describes and shows what a guy does with the powers of God that is simply off the chart. And there are certainly some irreverent things in that movie, but there's also a pretty profound statement that's made of why those empowers would simply not, it would not be wise to entrust them to mere human beings without limitations along the way. Again, maybe this promise was limited to the disciples in the upper room that night. But other passages seem to say the same thing to a broader audience. Like Tom and Phil, some of you have honest questions about these fantastic promises that seemingly have not been kept. Where are the greater works? Where is the answered prayer? Be sure to ask Tommy when he gets back. Okay, I'll take a stab at it. What if, despite our, un, our, our limited understanding, we were to take Jesus' promises at, faith value, at face value? Let's assume that the greater things Jesus talked about are in fact being accomplished in his name since his return to heaven. Things even greater than people walking on the water, giving sight to the blind, healing the lame, curing disease, feeding thousands, or even raising the dead. Keep in mind that Jesus' ministry is only about three years long in a very tiny corner of the world to a relatively small number of people. Ten lepers, a few demoniacs, an adulteress, a prostitute, a few fishermen, two thieves on the cross. Since then, his gospel has covered the globe with millions of people being saved for time and eternity. Ministries to the dying, the disenfranchised, prisoners, the military, colleges, um, assault perpetrators and victims, the poor and the rich have been impacted by people doing these things in his name, in the name of Jesus. While the works may not be greater in kind, they are definitely greater in extent and greater in impact for his kingdom. Even during this pandemic time, you know, for years... <clears throat> Pastors, elders, and spiritual leaders are saying, how are we going to get the church out of the box? How are we going to start thinking differently? We used to, to, to do this periodically with our leaders and saying, if we could start church all over again, this church all over again, from scratch, just kind of like that. Remember Etch-A-Sketch? Like that? Clear the deck and start all over again. In some ways, the pandemic has given us an opportunity to do that very thing to start thinking differently about the kingdom, thinking differently about what the church is and what we're here to do and how we can go about having it happen. Our church there in North Platte, Nebraska, <clears throat> um, when we went online, we were only, only had to be uh, out for about 10 weeks the whole time. But like most churches, like you guys have done and a lot of other churches have done, started going and trying to figure out the technology for live stream. And we know from the people that were tuning in that there were people that would never have come into the church building that started tuning in online. Not simply from the local area, but literally from around the world. Somehow found that little church in North Platte, Nebraska. And I'll bet the same thing is true with Shepherd. I bet there are people who have tuned in and are connecting with the message 
and the worship that's going on here that never would have come to this location. And that's just one little example. So rather than grumbling and groaning and worrying and whining about the pandemic and other troubling issues, we start to think creatively, engage actively, and invest generously in expanding the uh, kingdom of Jesus Christ until he comes or we go. There's no higher purpose. There is no greater work than expanding the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is the greater work. It's getting the gospel out to the world, generation after generation after generation, people group after people group after people group, expanding it all around the world from that time until now. While unanswered prayers can be troubling, I think there's a bigger problem than unanswered prayers. Ronnie, I want an amen when I say this. Worse than unanswered prayers are unprayed prayers. Thank you. Worse than unanswered prayers are unprayed prayers. One of the 12 disciples, Jesus' half-brother James, addressed both of these issues in James 2.3. He says, you don't have the things you want because you don't pray for them. When you pray for these things, you don't get them because you want them for the wrong reason, for your own pleasure. What might happen if we engaged our troubled hearts during troubled times as a call to prayer, individually and corporately? Not just any old prayer, but the bigger prayers, the bigger requests, bigger maybe than we've ever prayed before, assuming that Jesus meant it when he said you're going to do greater things. Assuming Jesus meant it when he said, when you ask these things in my name, I will do it. If it isn't, sometimes we will. What if it's not according to his will? We ask and it's not according to his will. You know what? He'll say no. He'll say no. Or he'll say wait. Or he'll say later. Or he'll say in a different way. It's okay, that's the thing. But we need to pray. You know, we need to get those requests out there. We need to get up out on the table. We don't worry about forcing his hand because you can't do that. You can't force God's hand. He's God. He's God. But he wants us to be engaged in this way. And as we continue to ask, he just might reshape our prayers to they begin to align more with his will. In other words, we start, it's kind of like a course correction. And we start praying this because it seems like this is the thing that we should be asking for and we're bringing those requests before him. And we continue to to bring those things before him and in time we find that our heart becomes more in tune with his and that our requests are actually shaped by that. I have a feeling we see a lot fewer troubled hearts if there was more trusting prayer, individually and corporately. To disciples in the middle of the chaos and crisis, in the middle of drama and trauma, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be troubled. Because your future is bright, and the path is clear, and your faith is valid, and the possibilities are endless. Now, I want you to turn to somebody right now and say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Turn to someone and say that. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your, isn't that a good word for us to share? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Really? Really? Jesus, thank you for this portion of your word. <clears throat> I agree with Rob. It's a great passage. And it has so many rich things for us, especially now in these troubled times. And Lord, I pray that you would truly give us, for the reasons that we've talked about today, untroubled hearts that set us apart in the middle of a troubled world. Thank you, Lord, for Shepherd of the Valley Bible Church, for the testimony that she continues to give to this area. And Father, I pray that you continue to build her faith and her impact in the years that are ahead. Bless Tommy and Sue. Thank you so much for the elders of this church, for the spiritual leaders. And Lord, I pray that you would give them all that they need, all the wisdom and energy and courage that they need to live with untroubled hearts and to share that message with others. And we pray these in the strong and wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>